Hello, my name is John O'Connell and welcome to AMX Speaker Leadership Podcast, a Swedish phenomenon which is coffee and a cake with friends who will shortly introduce themselves. So on this podcast, uh, uh, we are going to be talking around the challenges of uh, health and care systems and the rise of tech and digitization in health and data research to provide new and evolving ways of treating mental health and illness in the UK or providing a more integrated approach to healthcare in the round. Later, we'll be discussing the need for more research in partnership with service users, such as the Radar CNS project. And I'm also delighted to say that we have some patients on this podcast who will be giving their invaluable perspectives a little later. So now I'm going to hand over to our distinguished guests to find out a little bit more about their work and to let us know what their favourite cake is and whether they prefer tea or coffee, because after all, this is Fika. So I'm going to hand over to Richard Dobson. Thanks, John. Uh, so my name is Richard Dobson. I'm a professor of health informatics based at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology uh, and Neuroscience at King's College London and also the Institute of Health Informatics at UCL. And I, I think my preference is for tea. And uh, in terms of cake, I think probably a carrot cake. Um, and I think two pillars of, of our work are focused around, firstly, focused around the, the fact that um, there's a lot of data collected on you uh, and about you whenever you engage with the health, health system. So typically that will be, uh, you'll, you'll have experienced that whenever you sit with a, a doctor, they will spend a significant proportion of their time, um, you know, sitting there entering information into a computer, into a, into a computer screen. And so, you know, that has largely, in many cases, replaced what used to be a paper system. But those papers, those paper systems were, you know, in some ways more accessible than the new systems that are in place because you could flick through notes and you could, uh, you know, you could quickly search, search through and find a bit of information about a, a person in front of you. But these electric systems, electronic systems, uh, becoming huge repositories of data which contains information about you and your care and also contains a huge amount of information about people like you but unfortunately this data is really kind of inaccessible so our focus is really on developing the kind of technology that allows us to turn these kind of one-way data uh, data repositories that just collect and store data into useful tools that we can use to derive insights uh, to provide better more streamlined care so that's the first area of focus for us. Um, secondly, uh, we focus on, on you know, the potential, the opportunity for using uh, modern tech that we all can carry around with us on a daily basis um, and pretty much 24-7. So you'll know, you know, everybody has a smartphone, everybody, most people are wearing uh, wearable devices such as Fitbits or Garmin's or, or Apple Watches. So these devices are essentially collecting data about us 24-7. Uh, and so is there an opportunity to, to use some of this data to inform care, um, to provide maybe early insights into, uh, into events um, uh, and also to provide you know, ongoing uh, care or insights into, say, treatment response, uh, potentially inform, uh, you know, provide information relating to potential relapse, um, and the like. And so our challenge here is to really kind of evaluate these tools. And we're at very early stages of this at the moment, but can we use this kind, these kind of tools and the data that they provide to help people self-manage, firstly, but also to provide a better connection between you and this disjointed 
kind of system, health system and, and uh, the carers that are, that are part of that to provide a more kind of interactive and, and continuous two-way flow of information. Um, and basically, you know, sharing the data that you own as a, as a person and you're generating, sharing it with the care system that might be able to provide get better care to you because of that sharing. Well, thanks for sharing that with us. And uh, Robert, if you could introduce yourself. Yeah, hello, my name's um, Dr. Robert Harland. I'm a psychiatrist at uh, South London and Maudsley NHS Foundation Trust, where I'm um, a clinical director in something called the Psychosis Clinical Academic Group, and also in a borough called Lambeth. And I'm the Trust Caldercott Guardian, which is uh, partly looking at, uh, partly a role that looks at confidentiality and ensure that uh, uh, data is protected. Um, I guess I'd probably have a cup of coffee, please, and uh, a piece of that nice carrot cake you've got over there. Um, so I think, yeah, just really to build on what Richard said, I mean, all the work we've done, I'm a clinician um, and I couldn't have done any of this work without collaborations with um, computer scientists like Richard and also informaticians, so people who really understand the data deeply. Um, you know, as Richard was saying, we've got these enormous um, lakes of data, which are um, a lot of which has been um, recorded for reporting purposes, or um, at least that's how it's filed. And so it's very difficult both for uh, you as a patient to um, access your data, see your data, but also for clinicians to organise um, the system in such a way to um, give you bespoke care and ensure the right resources are in the right place. So um, one thing that perhaps we'll come on to talk about is this piece of technology that Richard's team and others have been developing called natural language processing. And basically, um, you know, ever since we developed electronic patient records, we've been essentially filling in forms um, for purposes, as I say, including reporting to, to the centre of the NHS. Whereas natural language processing looks for mentions in the notes of, you know, whatever it might be, a medication would be a, a classic example. And this has really become extremely accurate. So we're now finding that if we use um, uh, an NLP app um, over our psychiatric notes, we can basically conduct a medication review in, in a, literally a click, something that would have taken possibly hours, if not weeks, for a pharmacist or a doctor to perform, um, particularly on patients who may have been under the the care of services for 10, 20 years. So that's just a, a very immediate real example where um, you can use some of this technology in a way that just makes it so much easier and so much quicker and so much more efficient and, and less costly um, uh, to provide healthcare. I mean, at the moment, uh, at least the work we've been doing with Richard, we haven't been, you know, this hasn't been about sharing data across the system, which obviously something has to be very carefully thought about. And Richie later will be talking a bit about this, I think, who's um, a, um, uh, a services representative within our trust who leads on a lot of this work. But what we're really trying to do is curate the notes that we already hold, so stuff that's already held in mental health, and make that more useful to individual care, and that includes the clinician providing that care and the patient receiving it. So, you know, we also have patient portal in the trust so patients can see their own, um, see, you know, see, see their own data. And I think that that's going to grow. And, and, and it's very important, obviously, that, that people receiving care can prompt the system, but also the system can nudge them. And, and I think that's the way you build a kind of collaborative relationship. 
Um, but then if you look at the group level, so, you know, people with a particular problem, is everyone in southeast London with, say, you know, a bipolar affective disorder, if we, you know, want to use that particular concept, receiving the care they should? And if not, can we identify which care they're not getting and ensure that it is offered appropriately? Obviously, some people may wish to be forgotten and, 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 and not be contacted, but many, many people, I think, also worry about neglect. And so there's a way of getting that balance right between those two things. When people are on a caseload, are they being efficiently managed? Are they getting everything they should get in a timely fashion? Often people only get part of the care offer or um, they, you know, they get discharged too soon or get discharged um, too early. So I think efficient caseload management is something we've been looking at. So managing a particular group, say with particular diagnoses or, or problems, making sure that at a group level, people get the right care on caseloads. And then also just thinking about resources at a population level. You know, we can see in the data which parts of Southeast London where we work particular problems are arising more commonly, but we don't necessarily put our resources to match that need. And that could even be in an integrated care system with, say, the voluntary sector. You know, if there's a particular area or place where there is a particular need, maybe in partnership with the voluntary sector, you might have some innovative way of working with families or with um, groups in that area to try and offer more support. That way, demedicalizing some of the problems so that, you know, it doesn't become just an issue for psychiatry. So um, so I suppose I'm talking really, and I, I guess I'll finish in a second, is really just about moving from this uncoordinated crisis driven system into something that's more about prevention and prevention of all kinds. Thank you, Robert. That's fascinating. Uh, thanks for sharing that with us. And on to our uh, first uh, sort of patient advocate, Lucy. Do you want to introduce yourself? Hello, everyone. My name's Lucy. Um, I am just going to move straight on to the coffee and cake. Uh, the reason why I'm on this podcast is because I was part of one of the studies, the radar CNS one. Um, and um, I am going to come up now with one of these complicated sort of coffee cake combinations that's going to really annoy everyone. So I'm allowed coffee unless it's after two o'clock, in which case I will be drinking green tea and or water. And um, anyone who knows me knows that I bake cakes rather than eat them. I'm actually kind of famous for it. I did an almond one yesterday that lasted 25 minutes and that was a three pounder. So uh, quite proud of that. At the moment, I'm eating my way through a dime bar cake from Tesco because I'm trying to work out how to replicate it. Um, but if you're offering me a slice of cake, it will have to be a really good, matured, solid fruit cake. And if it doesn't have cherries in it, it ain't a fruit cake. Fantastic. That's going to be the best cake one we've had so far. Thank you, Lucy. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. And moving on to Richard. Yeah, hi. I'm not sure how to follow uh, all of those introductions, um, but I'll, I'll follow Lucy's lead and go with um, uh, beverage preference. So coffee, always coffee. Um, there is no other drink. There's no point. Um, and cake, there is only one cake, and that's lemon drizzle cake. All others just mixed substances. Maybe there might be some disagreement, but you know, lemon drizzle is my thing. And so my reason for coming along is I have been around and watched the development of um, a population health-driven tool that uh, Dr. Harlan's been uh, talking about. And my interest is about I own my data 
and I want to see it. Not everyone does, and I want to know it. One of the things that I think are problems, um, I've got a primary diagnosis depression. It's now managed um, at f- in a GP practice, thank God, um, but gets severely aggravated um, by um, alcoholism. So uh, if I drink, I'm finished. Um, so I remain abstinent from all of that. But I'm also a healthcare professional, um, which is a weird mix. Um, and I'm in a, um, a role where my um, so-called lived experience of, of, of a condition is explicit. So um, I'm in a service user representation role that leads and finds services and carers to get involved um, and push and forward improvement projects. And that's the, the link to both our, our portal, which we can talk a little bit more about in a bit, and also um, the platform that Robert's talking about. But just one of the issues is too many different systems um, and they're talking to each other and a primary thing is uh, I was in St Thomas's Hospital and my GP because it's in Lewisham has to get permission to view data that he wouldn't need if I lived in Cyber Call Lamov. That's fascinating. No, thanks and yeah no I, I, yeah, I can call it your lemon drizzle <laughs> but um, just you know, fascinating insight from a provider to a, to a service user as well that's a fascinating insight and thanks for sharing that insight with us. And just back, circling back around to Richard, I think Robert mentioned um, something around uh, natural language processing and some of the innovative projects you've got on the way. Would you to expand on those a little bit more for our listeners? Yeah, so the, um, so you, you know, whenever you are with a, with a doctor or clinician, they will be, they will be writing. Um, and of course, doctors are famous for having this kind of terrible handwriting, right? But uh, nowadays they are typing into into machines instead of handwriting. But it's um, they you know they're still kind of writing a lot in in narrative. And medicine is a very kind of subjective thing, isn't it? And so it doesn't really fit into neat boxes and and measures often, you know. But particularly with with mental health. So in order to kind of be able to use this data, we need to be able to to characterize it to, to be able to use it at scale. We need to make it understandable. For machines, essentially, because you know, whilst writing is text is a really good thing for humans to to read. They can quickly comprehend it. They can understand it. They can understand subtle nuance, and they understand that different words can be uh, used to represent the same thing, and they can get around acronyms and spelling mistakes and and all of this kind of thing. But it's it's quite. We've got to get machines up to kind of human level of understanding of that text, right? So we want to go as far as we can in creating this, turning this mass of data that we have that exists in these legs, um, exists in this kind of way which is okay for humans to, to comprehend into a way that machines can comprehend because we can't have big teams of humans sitting down and wading through this data in a sustainable, scalable way. So to get the greatest insights, we need to be able to do that. So we've been working on this thing called natural language processing, which is an approach um, within computer science that allows us to read and understand the, the text that's been written by the doctors. And so one of the key challenges is to be able to read that and understand it and map it onto medical concepts or medical terminologies, medical dictionaries. So you have various kind of various kind of dictionaries which have been defined, um, which we then try to, to map the underlying text onto. And these can be, you know, broadly concepts of disorders or medications or um, symptoms or procedures. 
things like that. And so these large dictionaries exist and essentially we want to turn what is essentially a, a letter or a report into something which looks a little bit more like a, an Excel spreadsheet. And we need to be able to understand not just the words, but the context within which they've been used. So, you know, you might see HR within a, within a record um, and that could mean, obviously it could mean hour or it could mean heart rate. So the machine needs to look at the context, the surrounding context of that in order to be able to understand or differentiate between the two different uses of that and then to be able to infer, you know, the medical uh, concept that maps to that. Obviously, there can be many different ways of writing a, a particular drug. Um, and so we need to be able to map those onto kind of a, the root, the root medication. So we've been building these, these AI-driven uh, models using uh, uh, neural network type approaches, which are kind of very kind of modern uh, deep learning based uh, approaches, which you'll find are used in, you know, in, in all kinds of uh, life now. And there's been huge advances within these as a, a kind of AI uh, area. So we've been applying those kind of models to uh, medical information in order to try to uh, categorize it and to be able to make it more appropriate for uh, and available for downstream uh, further computation and insights. And so we've been presenting, we'll be building uh, alerts for safety events that uh, when when a particular concept is detected within the record or presenting some of this processed information back into dashboards that Rob and, and his team will be looking at um, or will be using it to improve uh, service efficiency. Um, and, you know, so managing the population, we can feed this information into the to dashboard to manage the population or manage caseload or manage individuals as as Rob was talking about there. And so we want to, we've been training these, they, they obviously need to see a, a huge amount of information, the more information, the better. So we've been training them to, to um, and giving them as much information as we can to get a, a full and broader uh, view as possible to make them as generalizable um, across different hospitals as, as possible. Uh, Richard, I take it it, it it applies to what Robert was saying about that gap about need and gap where you don't know there's a missing gap of need. Are you applying it in those, in those areas? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you can use it to understand, you know, maybe where there are, um, you know, gaps according to ethnicity, maybe, you know, different different populations or subpopulations are being treated differently. And so we can use it to really kind of understand um, how particular uh, patients or patient groups are being cared for maybe where there are, uh, we're using it to, to help manage and identify um, people with, with mental health conditions in SLAM, you know, where physical health uh, is not being managed. So where diabetes isn't being managed, for example, or where somebody's having a particular kind of negative response to a, a medication or where somebody has built up or has treatment resistance to uh, antipsychotics. So we can, you know, we can really kind of pinpoint and identify those kinds of people or groups of people far more easily and therefore target uh, intervention, interventions a lot, a lot more specifically and, and directly. And, and just leading on there, or question to the wider panel, obviously that for Richard, these take coming together of teams and, and working together in, in new ways. Have you, uh, have, do you have an approach that you use on that? So, yeah, I mean, I can come in, in on that. I mean, I think just, again, just sort of building on what Richard was saying, the 
you know, if you take physical health checks in people with serious mental illness, you know, SMI is the acronym that the NHS uses. There's a there's an NHS priority to ensure that everyone in that group gets their six physical health checks completed on an annual basis. Um, now, if you're just looking at forms, you just basically measure whether someone's filled in the form, which forms are poorly done. Whereas using the the, the natural language processing the NLP, you can basically scan the notes and say, oh, look, a blood pressure was done then, or actually look there, the, the glucose was measured. And that then has allowed us to build, in our case, a central team who've got a platform so they can see everyone in the trust who has um, SMI and see who is not getting what check. And then this allows outreach to support particular teams that are struggling, skill people up, you know, is it that they're not confident doing the checks? Is it, you know, is it they haven't got the equipment? Is it is it that they haven't been able to get hold of the person? And this team will also go to people's homes and and um, and complete the checks there. And then and then, of course, if you can identify who needs the checks and get them done and get it in the record, you can then start liaising across the system to think, well, what pathways do these people need to be on? You know, there's a 20 year mortality gap in SMI. Um, and a lot of that is is um, is illnesses like diabetes and so on. And so it's terribly important these things are managed well, again, in that preventative way. And so NLP sounds sort of rather technical and AI and boring, but actually it, I think, can make a huge clinical difference to um, us targeting limited resources in the right place and to the right people at an earlier stage. I mean, I think just to emphasise that point that Rob was making there, I, I think there's... it. it a huge amount of information is stored in that narrative. So if we could rely on what is in the structured information, then it'd be great. But of course, people are pressed for time and they're just far happier to write uh, something as, as part of text into a text box rather than you know scroll through and try and find a structured field and record it there. But there just isn't the capacity to do that. And I think people, um, you know, so I think for, for at least for the foreseeable future, we're going to be very much dependent on these kind of tools for passing uh, passing records. And thank you. And Lucy. Hi there. Um, just following on from what uh, Richard and um, Robert were saying, I think as I, I would, I'm going to use the phrase end user, as someone who's going to be at the receiving end of these kind of interventions, I think that that kind of lack of um, lack of response is in itself a response. And so when you're saying, well, this person has missed this check, especially if you're someone like me who's who suffered, you know, suffers from depression and, um, you know, has also um, been in active addiction for many years, that shortcut almost where you're saying, well, this hasn't been flagged up we need to go and check on this person is is genuinely a lifesaver. Um, and I appreciate absolutely the huge amount of data that's coming in and everything else. But I think the this sort of the use of the NLP as a, you know, as a way to summarize the information that's coming in, perhaps in conjunction with the wearables, where if you're able to, and while we're still looking at, at aspects of data protection here and what people are allowing you to have access to, if you're saying, well, I can see from, from Lucy's wearable that her activity levels have, you know, have really dropped. She's definitely doing less. As someone who suffers from depression, I'm not going to reach out to you and say, I feel bad. But if someone reaches out to me and says, hi, are you okay? That would 
definitely make me much more able to come forward. And I think it will also be what I would call an early warning system. So you're not having to deal with someone who's in acute stages of of serious mental illness. You're dealing with someone who's in the early stage and it may just need a check-in. It may just be that small intervention rather than later on having to have a big intervention, which, um, as, as we all know, can be A, expensive and B, hugely disruptive, um, on so many different levels of care because then you have to inform everybody else what you've done while you're doing it, if you see what I mean, and everybody has to have the duplicate forms. So, um, yeah, as someone who's going to be the recipient of that, strong supporter of it, and I think I would love to hear more about it. Great insights. Thanks for sharing that, Lucy. Just, I'll, I'll add to that, really. Um, in our particular trust and uh, and how it's working is that those that are working with a particular GP will have a list of all patients that have been registered with us whether they've been discharged or not and and you're right it's a way of checking in and prompting the GP to go on the Joe blogs um, we think you might be due a, a, a check uh, and it prompts the GP to do that follow-up stuff um, and it really helps working because we showed the the platform obviously I'm, I'm not as deeply knowledgeable about NLP but I've seen the platform to primary care nurses and it was like oh my god this is the answer to our prayers instead of them looking through notes of who's due what where who's with what gp it's just there instantly and what that starts to allow for um population management is start to anticipate where um situations and what gp practices um are kind of got a lot of patients that are not being checked so it starts to really um, plot out across the area um, and I'm only talking about our, our local footprint of South London Morsley which is four geographical boroughs um, this information already in this I'm, I'm going to call it infancy even though there's been a lot of work gone into it shows um, whether you've had your health checks what medications you've been on um, what interventions you've had or not had whether you've had smoking cessation what BMI checks it's just all of that stuff that kind of um, can get lost and there's individuals at the end of that. Um, we, we, as part of the work that I do, is um, we have a reference group of services and carers um, with uh, psychosis or caring for someone who has, who kind of um, for quite a while holds uh, robbed to account for 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 the for the psychosis pathway, uh, and when we first showed um, that this platform to them, immediately thought that this was such a uh, um, I can't think of the right words. Sorry, I'm not as professional as you three. Um, uh, really thought this would be helpful to manage not only themselves but also start to see what other um, services or 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 what other people were weren't getting and maybe looking across to for comparisons and some sort of parity of um, using it as leverage to maybe get more treatment for them and their loved ones and go, oh, what's happening over there? They're getting that. Why are we not getting this? Um, and, and this information for people that can use it can then start to be seen in, uh, we have an online portal, uh, it's called Beth, and essentially it's an online app that people have a window into their notes. And um, this data can be shown there. But one of the key things in 
in in that is people can access and see their current um, care plan. They can message their care team. And there's a few other, other things in that I won't do a whole presentation on the app. But one of the, the great things is is a current um, safety. Uh, we call them safety plans now. They used to be crisis plans. So so people start to become unwell or want to be reminded or want to show their loved one what their plan is um, uh, and what advanced directives they have. Anyone turning up in a crisis, you know, the police come around or someone comes around, it's like, oh, this is my plan, or someone can show them. It's... When I used the service, I, I was, um, I used to have a, a paper care plan thrust at me and told, that's your care plan. Um, there was one care plan that um, I actually worked on with someone, and I kept that on my fridge because I had input and ownership of that. But, but what having... Um, uh, a digital device like my my phone is I, I'm I'm not kind of I don't know taking my jeans out of the laundry and, I, and my care plan's been washed. Do you know what I mean? It's all in one place. Um, my only kind of um, if if I could snap my fingers would be just to have one system for the NHS across the whole country. I know that's not going to happen because competitive tendering and we are where we are um, because his system's talking to each other. And when I talk to service users that are in other trusts, they don't have, we don't all have the same system. We don't all have the same stuff like that. Um, I can froth, so I concede in my conversation um, space to somebody else. Thank you, which is really fascinating. Thanks for sharing that, that insight. And Robert, you got your hand up? Yeah, I was just going to sort of, um, you know, add to what Richie was saying about these windows into the notes like Beth or any kind of patient portal. And, and it relates actually back to some of the work we're doing um, as well that we haven't yet talked about. So two bits of it. One is just the simple thing of curating trend lines so that, for example, you know, you at least in our notes, all you can see is, you know, on this date, this person had this particular result. And it seems crazy because, of course, you always want to see trends, don't you? Well, we're now managing to put these trend lines together and put them alongside each other. So you can see, for example, you know, someone started on a medication. How does it affect their weight? How does it affect their white cell count? How does it affect their glucose? And you can see these trend lines over time alongside, say, the, the level of the medication itself, which can be very helpful for making decisions. And alongside that, so if you can imagine the clinician and the and the patient themselves seeing this, maybe one on their phone, one on the screen. We've also got these, we've been validating these point of care devices, particularly one for a particular medication, which used to take two weeks to get from the lab. It takes four minutes from this machine, from a little finger prick. So not only do you not have the pain of getting blood from the elbow, you get a finger prick here. It takes four minutes on this portable machine, which can then Wi-Fi the result straight into the electronic patient record and then put it in a trend line alongside other laboratory results, which of course allows, and, and the feedback we get from the patients involved in this is it's just so much more empowering because they can actually be there in the clinic immediately without a very painful blood test, just something like getting a diabetic sort of finger stick, you know, finger prick. Um, immediately be part of decision making about their medication. So I think, you know, the stuff that Richie's talking about and the developments on it are really central to empowering people who in the past have often felt done to. Thanks for sharing that. It's fascinating, isn't it? And just the, the speed of pace and then giving people control is just fascinating, isn't it? Lucy. 
coming in on the on the back of what Robert was saying, um, again, speaking as an end user, that's absolutely true. And the, I think the joyous thing about using these these wearables is that you yourself as a patient are empowered because you're able to see trends. So it's very simple to look at your stats and say to yourself, gosh, I've, you know, I've done less here or I've done more here or I've, oh, I've slept a lot more than I would normally. And you're able to look at the causes, especially when when you're in the grips of of mental illness, when you're in the grips of depression, you don't pay a lot of attention to what's going on around you. So it's really handy to have this accessibility, um, which you can also use perhaps if you're not getting um, the best care, which, which, you know, it can be possible for a number of reasons where you can go in and say to someone, I know that I'm becoming ill because here's, I'm sleeping less, um, you know, I'm, I'm moving less, I'm, you know, and it's all here, it's all tracked, like I can, you know, I can show you the record. Or it's lovely if you get like a really great, you know, the doctor says I'm going to change your, your antidepressant, which is what happened to me um, a couple of months ago. And almost you know within about a month I was like goodness my step count's gone up and I just felt you know that was my immediate kind of thing where I was going gosh I feel better um but it wasn't you know it wasn't something that I would have thought to track as a trend if I hadn't already been wearing something or using something that tracked it as a trend you see what I mean and it was lovely to be able to go back to the doctor and say yes I've got proof that this works um yeah. And it's so empowering, very much, very much so. And once you're empowered as someone who suffers from depression, it means that everything else in your life becomes much more easy, much more accessible. Because you feel like, as you said, you're you're in charge. You're not being done to. You're the one do, that's doing. And that's such a powerful feeling to have. Richard, just to, just to back that up, actually, we did a small study a while ago in people uh, with psychosis and uh, just wearing consumer wearable devices. And the key finding from that was we there was very useful information from it, but the self-management component was just such an important part of that. And the, the the thing that people reported back as being most useful was this ability to be able to say, well, I started to feel terrible. And then I looked, I looked at my some of my traces and I saw that my sleep had been disrupted for the past week. And, you know, therefore, it, that was very kind of reassuring. Uh, for them to be able to kind of see that there was some some explanation for that, but then it's also something for them to be able to report as well to, you know, and you know, and, and possibly kind of um, share with the the care team. And I, I mean, just the overriding, really kind of important point is this kind of shift away as well from this paternalistic kind of um, system to something where participants and people are empowered and they the data is in their hands and their control then in control of um, how that's used and and they have it, just having view of it is is critically important yeah i think i agree with that richard i think is the paternalistic thing comes from probably the health system having all the cards on their side but now it's it's been that sort of you know sharing over you know making it open as we call it safely open yeah yeah i think gradually kind of building these um underlying system agnostic platforms that we're building to be able to crack open these these data and then gradually kind of you know get the benefit from from the investment in it because a huge amount of money has obviously gone into to collecting this data and also looking forward i mean what would you guys see as kind of the key data challenges i think uh, richard mentioned there's lots of obviously different systems do you see anything as kind of the if others are, are listening, uh, what would you see as some of the key challenges from a data perspective that sort of handle some of these projects? Do you have any thoughts on that? 
Well, I mean, just one. I mean, um, there's lots, but one is uh, the data sharing challenge, um, which is both technical and ethical, because, of course, if you give your data to, um, you know, a, a psychiatric provider like us, you don't want it shared uh, just with anyone. You may not necessarily want it freely shared with your GP or with, with the acute hospital, um, or at least you'd want it to be thoughtfully shared. Uh, not just in bulk. But so so that has to be done very carefully and thoughtfully. Um, but then there's also a technical level, because I, I doubt there's many people that wouldn't want a blood test from their GP to be on their psychiatric record, or if it's done in the acute hospital, be on their GP record or their psych. And yet it's often not. And so we've built systems in London where we can look over fences and we can see what's been done, but we still can't flow the data through. And so even at these very simple levels, which then impacts on things like knowing who in the SMI population, as I was saying about earlier, needs a health check doing. Because if you can't see in your record whether the health check's been done in some other part without actively looking over the fence and writing it on a piece of paper, that is, um, you know, uh, very inhibiting. So, um, so those two data sharing challenges, how do we do it ethically and how do we solve those technical challenges, I think for me is one of the big things. How do we get our contracts, um, long-term contracts um, with people that hold and share data and who owns it? And um, I'm probably talking out of school here a little bit, but that's definitely a challenge. And the, and the different systems. And I'm not saying people shouldn't, I don't know, developers shouldn't create systems that they sell on to people. But um, the, there's, I mean, in London, just the, in the Mental Health Trust, the, there's a multitude of different systems. And GP systems are, are different across the, the piece. So that competitive marketing has set, it's established those boundaries where where that those fences that Rob talks about. But yeah. I'm going to shut up to people know more about that stuff than I. That's, that's a critical point. I mean, you, you kind of imagine, wouldn't you, that the NHS would have a single system. You know, this is what we often talk to people, you know, from a broader thing. You're so, you say you're so lucky to have the NHS system and be able to access all this data, you know, across the piece. But actually, it's just not like that. And, you know, these many different systems and we don't have, we have the challenge of interoperability between the systems and different different standards, different data models. And so this is where we need to really be able to build these systems that are kind of agnostic to that a little bit and can use modern technology to, to get these data released. But yeah, it's, it's hugely challenging, isn't it? Um, being able to link data in the most appropriate, in the appropriate or acceptable way to be able to um, use the data to generate research as well because you know we there's a huge amount of information here on which medications work for which people and uh, where they don't work obviously there's randomized control trials that are done on very small kind of unrepresentative populations and so to this you know potentially accessing this data gives us a much better view on who's likely to respond to a medication but you know we we have to be able to kind of do that in a responsible and a way that's acceptable to, to the people that uh, have generated the data. It's, it's interesting, it's just that interoperability challenge, isn't it? It's, it's, it's a big one, that is, isn't it? It's, uh, but I know that the Ben Goldacre paper that came out, there's some work being done, isn't it, for trusted research environments. So hopefully we'll start seeing some sort of positive movement in that. But no, that's really, yeah. thanks for sharing those insights. And just looking ahead at, as well into the future, and I think, Richard, you mentioned it before about, you know, patient-generated data. What could, it, what could it look like in the future if we, we start doing some of the challenges we face, though, with that? 
I think Lucy um, talked about some of the benefits and we started to talk about self-management and I'm more likely to do stuff if um, I feel in charge of doing it rather than being done too. So there's an empowering element. One of the challenges is um, digital equality and people having the skill and ability to to engage with those. Um, um, when does it become intrusive um, versus helpful? Um, so, so, so there's loads of hurdles to get through. I mean, um, but one of the, um, I am going to say one of the positives of COVID is the huge uptake in working and living in, in, in electronically has changed people's lives. Some for the better, uh, a lot for the better, some not so. I mean, I've been working from home um, for a couple of years and I've had to start coming in because of my mental health and the isolation. Um, but, but yeah, so, so there are a few challenges. One of one of the things, and it might be another podcast, um, John, about the London Care Record, um, trying to to improve some of this um, data um, accessibility. Like my 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 um my most recent experiences, um, I just got a, I got a, I've heard this so much from service users. I was lucky to get this worker. So basically, getting a worker that's actually do something for you. Um, so I, I was in A and E, and I'd been meaning to try and get a, a blood test. For, for, for my GP, I've had the paper on me for ages. Can't get, I've got poor venal access. Um, every phlebotomist mistakes is a personal challenge to try and find a vein in me. Uh, and I'm in A&E and I said, could you do this for my GP? And they said, yeah. And they'd done the test. But my GP can't access it because they're not in Lambeth. And, they're not in, in the borough that deals with that hospital. So he has to make a request. And, and, and the current shared care record there's minimal data i'm i'm trying myself up in not but there's there's many challenges but there's many benefits for those that want to want to live and work that way like my my eldest has got autism she will not talk to a therapist but she would text and talk some some people would just engage in different ways um i suppose just as we've got the, the gap as um robert said earlier about you know care gap we've also got that digital gap yeah so it offers a lot there's still a long way to go um, just addressing what Richie said about the digital gap, um, I think I think that's true. I the job that I work in, um, we deal a lot with um, inclusion and accessibility, and that is definitely an aspect. I think one of the important things that we we can we can perhaps look for in in moving this forward is that you know you have different uh, translator systems that you can use on your smartphone and stuff like that and that can that can be really useful um i went to an appointment yesterday for something and the translator had turned up but the patient hadn't um and i know this is a very a very common kind of um occurrence the other thing is and richie touched on this as well is the is the level the kind of i'm going to call it the level of participation now for me i loved being part of the study and i loved getting you know being introduced to the wearable i'd never thought of getting one before now i have like the latest high tech like i feel like terminator walking around with the amount of tech i've got on me um but it has revolutionized my life Sorry, thank you, Radar CNS. <laughs> it's revolutionised my life in the terms of not only how I, I manage my depression, but also how I I'm able to um, to think about things in terms of like what am I doing that's going to lead to a downturn in my mood later. One of the things that we did notice in the feedback sessions <laughs> was that uh, the older generation, and I'm including myself in this, we really hated getting those notifications. Like you know, and it's like you haven't moved, and it's like yes, I'm trying to finish a project, so you know you have to you have to have the accessibility and it needs to be accessible in a way that even the 
most digitally moribund person is able to turn off the notifications. Otherwise, especially if you're depressed, it just becomes another rod to beat yourself with. Like I know. So, yes, maybe I haven't moved for an hour because I'm desperately trying to finish this project. And, you know, can you just can you just go away, please? But on the other hand, I may not have moved for five hours because I'm lying curled in a ball, like stuffing my face with Ben and Jerry's and, and you know, and and that notification in and of itself may not be useful to me. So it needs to be in a way that you can turn those notifications off, but also you can get a positive notification when you have done something that is an achievable, easy, uplifting goal for you. Um, and and that's one of the joys about these things is that you can program it to say, yeah, you walked the dog. You know, you, when you're suffering from depression, sometimes your 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 successes or any kind of serious mental illness, your successes for that day can be can appear really small to someone who doesn't have the same problems. So, for example, sometimes getting up and cleaning your teeth and washing your face is like you like that's it. You've won today. You've done well enough. That's all good. And if your Fitbit is saying, hey, you haven't walked, sorry, or your wearable is saying you haven't walked like, you know, 10,000 steps, that's a smack in the face. Like for me on Tuesday, I got up and I washed my face and I had something to eat and I'm considering that a win. And I think that part of the technology we need to put in there is that what is an achievable measure to have as a notification, to have as a goal on these things. And um, and yeah, I'm not going to say GDPR, but definitely how's that data going to be shared? How can we access it across all? I was in A&E on Saturday night for high blood pressure and my GP said, oh, I can't see the results of any of these tests. You're going to have to come into the surgery. And I was like, oh, God, OK. You know, and that's that's frustrating in and of itself. Sorry, thanks, Lucy. And Richard? Yeah, I, I, that's, uh, thanks a lot, John and uh, Lucy. So, yeah, just to that radar CNS study, we should have we should have maybe flagged that a little bit earlier, shouldn't we? That was a a study that Lucy was part of that was um, a European study where we're looking at MS, epilepsy and depression and uh, using smartphones and, and wearable devices to um, to kind of look to see whether we could kind of do useful things with them in terms of detecting um, and um, monitoring those kind of disorders or changes in those disorders and looking at the trajectory and then possibly whether we could kind of identify relapse in things like depression. For um, epilepsy, it was really kind of looking to see whether we could detect seizures um, and then predict them. And of course, you know, I think this is a, a really kind of compelling use case, or I like to think that it is. Um, with epilepsy, if you're seeing your clinician or your carer once a month and you're, you're reporting on how many seizures you've had over that month uh, whilst you've been at home, you know, that's going to be really, there's a lot of kind of potential subjective kind of recall issues with, with that. And so the ability to kind of capture information passively and continuously uh, from something like a wearable device has the opportunity to transform your care because it will give a much more objective view on, on you know, your condition. Not only does it have the benefit of doing that for your direct care, but it will make trials a lot more informative, right? And a lot more kind of useful because you have a much better outcome and much more indication as to the state of somebody. So maybe, you know, whether somebody's responding to a medication or not. Um, but these, you know, these devices allow us to be able to capture uh, various kind of environmental or behavioral or physiological measures uh, in a kind of quite objective way. And so there's a combination of me mental uh, measures and physical measures 
um, you know, which together, of course, they're not they're not separate things. They're kind of intertwined. So heart rate can affect depression activity. You know, there's an association there between heart rate and depression or activity, sleep, depression, heart rate variability. Um, and, you know, and it's subjective and it's hopefully continuous. It's it's really challenging, obviously, that, that those kind of disorders are very heterogeneous. So, you know, some people might sleep more and some people might sleep less, depending on, you know, their, um, whether they're in a depressed state. Um, and, you know, so we have, need to think about how we kind of personalise those models. Um, and a huge part of everything that we're doing within the space is, of course, co-design. So working with people, working out what is acceptable, what devices people would wear, you know, what, how many notifications somebody vet could bear to handle, you know, per day. And so, you know, this is critical to, to understanding or to working out whether these kind of studies will, will work and whether they have any clinical utility because if people don't want to use them or if they find they don't want to use them when they become sick, then we've got a real problem here. And this is part of the research is working with people with these conditions to understand you know, what is going to be useful, what is going to be acceptable. And, you know, putting, continuously putting information into an app, reporting on uh, how they're feeling might not be useful to them when they're feeling rough. It's just there to remind them that they're actually sick and it's, you know. But if we can collect passive measures, uh, then that could be more useful. I think a really strong uh, opportunity um, is around speech for some conditions. Um, and particularly, I think, for things like depression, speech can be, could be a really powerful marker and indicator. Um, and certainly when we've been looking at engagement and, and the willingness for people to engage, we found that with certain measures, people, as their symptoms, if their symptoms are worse when they're enrolled, then they're less likely to engage. But with something like speech, actually, we found the converse is, is true. Right? So people um, have an, actually been more willing to engage in, a, in speech tasks, in recordings uh, about, you know, the speech uh, recordings about their feelings that uh, give us a, it allow us to capture speech, um, have been more willing to do that, uh, um, even in a kind of sick state. That's fascinating. Yeah. So, no, thank you, Richard, for that. And just to kind of finish off, there's a, there's a huge amount covered there, uh, and, and just a big thank you to you all. I'm just wondering, kind of, the work you've done it sounds very easy in you know, the successes that you have, but it obviously doesn't. It takes a lot of, a lot of sort of working together in partnership. Uh, what would your, in, in a couple of words for each one of you that go around, your kind of uh, strategy for overcoming failure? Because I'm sure there must have been failure along the way of some of these programs. You had to pivot and do things differently. Do you have any advice to our listeners on what would you say, you know, uh, would be some advice for them? If I kick off with who wants to start first? Um, I think failure has often come from uh, not being clear about what the priorities are, and as yeah. part of that, n not working with the right um, clinical direction, um, identifying the right clinical priorities, and not working with uh, participants or persons or you know, patients with conditions. So, working in from my perspective, working in isolation, thinking this is a great idea, we should do this, and then we should push it into you know a clinic and, or into a, a hospital next door, and it'll be great. And we'll get a great paper from it. I think that's where um, that's where we've failed. Um, great advice. Yeah. So I think we've changed that approach. Thank you. And Lucy? 
This is so funny because um, what Richard said, although this isn't really applicable to me because I'm I'm kind of an individual. However, I was reading a really interesting um, article the other day which talked about the difference between uh, American schooling and um, and sort of Japanese schooling. And uh, in America, if the teacher asks you to come up and do something on the board, it's normally because you've done something hideously wrong and everybody gets to see how badly you've done it. In Japan, if a teacher is, if a, if a student is failing and isn't getting this particular thing, then what the teacher will say was, do you want to go up to the board? The, the student will go up to the board and every other student in the class will will sort of help, help them along and, um, you know, and say, oh, well, I tried doing it this way. What about this? And I think what Richard is saying is like, you can develop a brilliant idea, like, um, um, solo, but actually you are not seeing what other people can bring to it. And especially you need to ask the people that it's going to be affecting primarily and get their feedback because, you know, you may run into a ditch straight away where someone says, oh, well, if I'm depressed, I don't want notifications. Thanks very much. Um, and also you've got everybody else on your on your kind of clinical team who has their own brilliant, unique insights. Um, I'm not saying that individuals aren't geniuses, but um, I'm saying that also getting, you know, getting that crowd feedback yeah. is, yeah. is what you need to to push you forward when you failed you need other people to lift you back up again brilliant thank you lucy um richie so i'll just kind of phrase from um the whole kind of service user involvement movement which is um nothing about or for me without me that's it yeah no absolutely thank you richie and robert yeah i mean i think before we started this project i think um a, a failure i could point to was what richard is talking about is a tendency to sort of identify a need often defined higher up in the system and employ someone with a software developer to sort of build the solution and then wondering why no one used it and i think the one thing that we did do right is that we got the right people in the room as you say the clinicians the really talented computer scientists, informaticians who deeply understood the, the data. And we've worked non-hierarchically, we've worked together and iteratively, and we've kept going around trying to answer the questions. So I think that's what we've done well. I think the challenge we face is uh, some of the technical ones we talked about, which is, uh, you know, about data sharing and so on. The trust issue, getting people to trust what we're doing, that includes people working in the system. And also, I just think a lot of the NHS has been set up as a crisis response system and trying to get it to become a more preventative system is really hard because it means looking for work that isn't quite there yet. You know, when someone's saying, I'm really sick, I need help, you know, the system responds. But we've got to turn ourselves into a system that can be more preventative, which ultimately will mean uh, we, we use our resources better and we get better outcomes. Thank you. And I just finally just I think Richard has mentioned in the chat there one thing, which is if we are obviously using those wearables and, and person generated information, we need to give the assurance and the safety about that information that's not going to be used uh, elsewhere or shared elsewhere. So no, really, really good points and thank you for them. I, I'm just trying to sum up, I think there's so many great points that were covered, guys, and thanks so much for, for sharing your wisdom on the call. And just for me, I think, you know, just going back, I think, you know, what was really keen that came out for me was some of the stuff that Richard was saying as well, that the data is already there. We don't need to look for new stuff. There's a lot there we can mine. There's a huge amount of value. But then the others have mentioned as well, coming onto the call, that it's about empowering patients to be more proactive themselves, giving them accessibility and inclusion. Absolutely, really, really powerful. And, and I think moving through that is then shifting from that paternalistic state to, you know, the patient-driven care, which is, it, it sounds simple, but we're, we're on that journey. 
I think for me, uh, in my own organisation, it's come through. What really came through powerful for me was this user-centred design and putting the patient at the centre of everything because those experiences, I would have thought, you know, alerts would be great, you know, but uh, as Lucy mentioned as well, they can be really irritating and actually send someone in the, in the opposite direction that you want them to go in. So, so absolutely fascinating. And just, just want to say a big, huge thank you. And just a, a final note just to, to our listeners. I think uh, Radar, CNS, Cogstaff and Beth, I'll link with you guys. If we can get the links for those programs of work and share them on the podcast, because I'm sure people would want to uh, sort of follow up on them. But thank you all. Really appreciate your time. It's uh, fascinating. Thanks again. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much.